Douglas Mutzker, the director of the Institute for Cultural Engagement, New Wine, New Wineskins. And it's my privilege today to interact with Dr. Jessica Taylor and Pastor David Swanson. And we're gonna be dealing with the subject of how to run the race marathon in the face of trauma and fatigue. Uh, these are leaders who know very well this subject matter and are going to bring their expertise to bear on it from life experience, from uh, academic reflection, a holistic hybrid work. Jessica and I are in the Pacific Northwest, so we love hybrids, right? And David, I don't know if you like hybrids in Chicago. I'm from the Chicago area, but uh, I'm really into hybrid now. And so uh, this is gonna be a very hybrid kind of exercise. Now, um, I have a great concern in the midst of all the racial turmoil. Uh, while I'm certainly concerned about racial turmoil, this is not really a new phenomenon. The racial turmoil has always been there. I was with a group of people the other day, and one of the persons, you know, was was saying that, you know, boy, all this turmoil in our society, and you know, I just wish people could get along. It was almost like it's only now that, for example, African Americans are feeling turmoil. No, it's like it's hit a new threshold and it's spilling over. It's always been there. It's always there. And the question is, have I been listening? Have I been responsive? Uh, it's just that many people are tired of not addressing it in a sustained way, and we have to stay engaged. How long, though, will we be able to, to stay the course, to keep it going, to not give up or get so exhausted that I throw in the towel? For many people, the racial wounds and the trauma go very deep. For others, often white people like myself, and I don't claim to be an expert on this, I'm still learning this, I'm still developing the resilience muscle. Um, there's often a talk of racial fatigue. And I put that in quote marks, um, racial fatigue. Maybe we'll get at that, why do I put it in quote marks? Anyway, in this interview, we are seeking to deal with strategic soul care, strategic soul care, to help us continue on the journey and become more resilient to run the race well the entire length of the marathon as a whole community, not just as individuals, but as a whole community, is what Dr. King would call the beloved community. And so Dr. Taylor and Pastor Swanson are helping us engage this theme. Let me share a little bit about them before I start asking them the questions. Uh, so here's a bio for Dr. Taylor. She is the VP of Diversity, Vice President of Diversity and Inclusive Development at Multnomah University. She is leading the way forward for us as an institution and as a community in seeking to grow in racial sensitivity, understanding, and equity. And that's a big challenge. Uh, as great as a school as ours is, um, the structures in place in any kind of academic institution in historic white evangelicalism will be fostered more in terms of individuals like myself. She and her team recently led an amazing workshop that is serving as a catalyst for us this coming year and beyond. Jessica has a professional background in coaching and counseling, which will be brought to bear on this discussion today, and is the author of Between a Rock and a Scarred Place. I love that language. Between a Rock and a Scarred Place, Relationship Recovery for Hurting Hearts. Pastor David Swanson is the founding pastor of New Community Covenant Church. And I've known David for many years. I think we're both Swedish American, are we not? I mean, don't let my German name fool you, David. I'm half Swedish. Uh, I'm a covenanter like you in background. Uh, you know, so anyway, I just wanted to say that at the outset. Um, 
And he pastors, uh, as I said, New Community Covenant Church. It's adjoining uh, Hyde Park, where the University of Chicago is in Chicago. And it's called the Bronson neighborhood. Is that correct? Bronzeville. Bronzeville neighborhood on the south side of Chicago. So you're a White Sox fan. Is that true? <laughs> I'm trying. My National League allegiances are, are hard to break, but I'm doing my best. I'm a Cubby, so uh, Northsider. So he also serves as the CEO of New Community Outreach, a nonprofit organization working to reduce causes of trauma, not just the symptoms, but the causes of trauma, and raise opportunities for equity in Chicago. David is also the author of Redisciplining the White Church, or Rediscipling rather, Rediscipling the White Church from Cheap Diversity to, to, to True Discipleship. Let me say this again, Rediscipling the White Church from Cheap Diversity to True Discipleship. And so my colleagues will be sharing from their work, no doubt, today as they engage these questions. My first question is for Jessica. Dr. Taylor, could you please unpack what quote-unquote, racial trauma might mean for African Americans and for ethnic minorities generally? So racial trauma or race-based stress is something that happens really when there's a chronic prolonged experience, like many people have in the United States, of being discriminated against, of experiencing racism, of having microaggressions or fear being part of their everyday experience. And that can be real threats where you've experienced real traumatizing events. And it can also be perceived experiences where you weren't really sure what was happening. This can happen, of course, to anybody um, that's experiencing themselves, especially as a racialized minority. And so in that, those experiences, especially of harm and injury, or the potential of harm and injury, have this compounding effect of adding stress to the body, to the mind, to the spirit, and that ongoing collective injury and the ongoing collective exposure to that kind of race-based stress creates all kinds of problems. Mm -hmm. And we know that racism, it dishonors God, the image of God, people made in the image of God. We know that it makes us less effective as a society, as a church. We know that it diminishes our Christian witness to the world. But with all of those things, it also causes just a generalized feeling of stress, of potentially unwantedness, or I'm not, I'm not wanted, I'm not welcomed. Um, you wonder a lot about your own intersectionality. For me, I wonder, is that because of my age or my race or my gender that somebody said that or treated me in this way? And of course, you can't necessarily know someone else's heart. So you're just left wondering. There's negative emotions that come about in that racialized stress about yourself, uh, and also potentially about other people. Are these other people here to harm me or hurt me? Or do they um, harbor some kind of malice towards me? And then that creates uh, oftentimes an avoidance of those kind of racialized situations or even a hypervigilance. Um, walking through the store is a great example. I don't just get out of my car and, and walk into a store without a thought. I think about, am I gonna bring my large person and is somebody following me to see if they can help me or are they following me to see if I'm stealing something? And make sure that you pay the extra cents now in Oregon to have the disposable bag because if you walk out of a store with something in your hand, it looks like you're stealing it and that you're more likely to be seen 
uh, as a criminal. And so just simply walking into a store can become this exercise in, in racialized trauma. Um, again, real or perceived, it's there and it causes an immense amount of stress. And especially right now in our climate, seeing in the media um, images of people that look like you being murdered, seeing images of people that look like you not feeling safe or being villainized. Um, it's really difficult to continue looking at that and try to figure out where do I fit in all of this? And again, am I welcome? Am I wanted? Yeah, so much there. And you know, many of these things I never have to think about. I mean, the only time I may think about like uh, in a grocery store, something along the lines of, well, they think I'm shoplifting. It's only if I've already bought my groceries and I go back in because they say, oh, why don't you go get a replacement for that? That's okay. And I come back and say, I've got my receipt, you know, I got my, I've already been through the line, you know, type of thing. That's the only time, but I don't think about that. I never thought about getting a Trader Joe's bag for that reason. Uh, but you have to, you have to, and it's not a coincidence. I find this often with my African-American friends, how an African-American pastor told me, he tells his kids every day, be safe when you go out. If you get pulled over, dot, dot, dot. And it's just like, really? I mean, it's true. It's true. There's a heightened vigilance, like you were saying, and uh, the epigenetic phenomena too, like of trauma, that how that impacts our health. It's not that African-Americans have more built-in problems. It's the impact of epigenetic phenomena, of the trauma, the, the stress. And I just interviewed two uh, scientists and anthropologists and uh, biologists on this subject the other day, and people impose these racialized biological things when it's actually social structuring that imposes these diseases based on people with these kinds of individuals and societal structures that so shape us. And so I, I think I'm speaking in keeping with what you were saying, Jessica. I just, it just, my mind's igniting with all these ideas in light of what you're saying. Anything further to that, Jessica? Well, similar to what you said, I think we know that bias is built in us, all of us. And an interesting thing that I've been exploring lately is this idea of nature and nurture when we talk about, okay, the bias is human nature, but we forget that it's also human nurture. Yeah. So exactly what you're talking about is that it's been nurtured into the different communities, either their responses or maybe the stimulus that they're putting out. And so we have to be able to recognize that that is part of it, although it is human nature for all of us to wonder, do we belong and to think about our safety and to experience stress even, that the nurturing specifically of the situation in our country right now um, is different and we really need to address those issues. Well, thank you so much. So Pastor David, let me ask you this question. What do you think of language like racial fatigue when used by individuals like ourselves, white men, etc., like you and me. And uh, feel free to take it up from whatever angle you wish. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, listening to, to Dr. Taylor because obviously, and, and as you say, Paul, you know, your experience, Dr. Taylor, versus my own is just a very different reality within a racialized society. And so I've been asked uh, over the past few months, quite a few times um, about this, um, about how do, how do I take care of myself? How do I engage in the face of opposition or backlash? 
And people are implying correctly that in the work of racial justice and reconciliation, even within uh, Christian spaces, there is inevitable pushback. And we know that that can get personal, that um, that, that can be a, a difficult experience. And, and yet the, the fact is that, that nothing I have ever experienced comes even close uh, to the sorts of, uh, of, of really profoundly challenging experiences faced by uh, my friends, neighbors, colleagues of color, and particularly, I would say, Black women who are in this, these spaces of, of, of racial equity and justice and reconciliation, uh, and even more so when those spaces are predominantly white. And so it's a strange, it's a strange thing to, to, to think about, because on the one hand, yes, as, as image bearers of the living God, we all want to, to think about, are we living well into the Imago Dei, right? Am I, am I living well into the fullness of, of the humanity that God has, has, has created me in? And that means things like taking a Sabbath. That means things like, you know, getting a good night's sleep and eating well. And, you know, I'm, I'm going away for a week uh, camping trip with my family tomorrow morning, right? So, so all of those things are, are important as it relates to, to caring for ourselves in this work. And yet, the, the language of fatigue to me is very, very tone deaf when it's applied to, to white people. But I think it, it, it reveals um, one of the, the attributes of, of whiteness, which is a kind of frailty, uh, a, a kind of um, a lack of, of grit or stamina when it comes to these kinds of things, that, that we have not been conditioned to to stick around. Uh, one of one of one of the pastors here on the south side says that privilege is the ability to walk away, and that 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 privilege has a deep formational power. When you can walk away from difficult things, we, we're not we're not conditioned to to stick with it to persevere through those things. And as a Christian, I think about that through the lens of discipleship, right? Jesus calls us to pick up our cross and to follow him. Implied in this is that there's going to be seasons in our discipleship that will be very, very difficult, that it will, that will, it will feel like a kind of death. Uh, and, and yet, uh, I think in, in many ways, um, our, our racial privilege has, has served to conceal that part of our discipleship from us or, or insulate it from us. And so I, I want to say to my white sisters and brothers that those moments of fatigue um, are maybe invitations for us to, to ask ourselves, well, let me, let me think for a moment about what my sister or brother in Christ, who, who shares my faith but not my race, what are they experiencing right now? You know, if, if I'm feeling a little tired, what might they be feeling right now? But then to also reflect inwardly and to say, is this, is this genuinely fatigue? Or is this something else? Am I, am I tempted to opt out right now? Am I tempted to, to distract myself with something because this just feels too hard? And I have the ability to not read the news tonight and not know uh, what, what's happening. So, so I think rather than using the, the language or claiming the language, I want to use the, the emotions or the feelings themselves to, to, uh, to lean into to empathy and solidarity and also to reflect a little bit inward. Thank you, David. Just a quick follow-up question. I and and you you answered it so well in terms of like why I would even put in quote marks racial fatigue. It was for that very reason because 
it often reflects, and it's not meant in a pejorative sense. It's not meant that we're trying to demean. I mean, I struggle with it, right? And, you know, and, and uh, in the sense of, I get exhausted about this, but it's like, who am I kidding? I don't have to live in this reality since birth. Um, and I can come and go as I please to an extent, right? I think that's why it's so hard is because we're hearing it more, seeing it more, and we think now we have all this turmoil. No, it's been there. We're just forced to an extent, forced to deal with it, but I can still turn off the TV set if I wish. Um, so what would you encourage then people? I mean, you said, let's move toward empathy, but when they honestly say, I'm really tired, Pastor David, you're not, and I know you, I know you, you wouldn't discount that. Of course. How would you encourage them to, you know, move toward empathy, but how do you deal with them in terms of like helping them stay engaged? with that exhaustion that they're experiencing? How do you, what's, what is something you would say to transition it? So I have a couple of thoughts that come to mind and, and, and I have to confess that I'm, I'm thinking on the fly here. And so, you know, you, you, the two of you rein me in if I go off too, too, too far into left field here. Um, one is that the, the beauty of the body of Christ is that there are uh, saints who have gone before us, who have experienced these sorts of things and who have, a word for us. Um, and, and, and in our American context, those of us who are white, if we were to move into a place of empathy and solidarity, we would actually find an entire uh, a tradition of Christianity within Black congregations that have had to wrestle with that very question, to say, what does it look like to persevere, to not be overcome, uh, to, to have deep roots, right? Like uh, the, in the psalmist language, a tree planted beside those living waters so that regardless of what we're faced from, from the outside, there are, there are rhythms of worship, uh, of rest, of feasting, of celebration, of Sabbath, of testimony, uh, that, that these things, there, there is an entire stream of American Christianity that I don't, I don't mean to, to, to overly generalize or, or to romanticize, but, but who can testify that there is a way of, 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 of worshiping and living together that, that is sustaining. And I, I, I think what's beautiful to me about that is it, it leans into a, a corporate experience of the faith rather than the, the tendency to, to think very individualistically. And I, I, I struggle sometimes with the language of self-care because it puts all of the onus on myself to care for myself. And I'm just not that good, right? I, I'm good at deceiving myself. I'm good at telling myself, I'm not that tired. I'm not that worn out. You know, I, I've got more in the tank. I, I need to be a part of a community of faith that is, is caring for me, is, is providing a rhythm and, and a way of worshiping with, with the people of God together. So, so, so that's, that's one piece, I think, is that we have, those of us who are white actually have a lot to learn from and, and ways of being formed by those sisters and, and brothers. Secondly, and I'll try to be real brief here, could that tiredness, could that fatigue um, remind us of our weakness, remind us that, that um, the, the racial formation that has privileged us, that has, in a sense, inculcated a sense of, of superiority, um, th that, is dis that is wrong. That is a lie. And that, in fact, we are, we are weak people 
who, who desperately need the power of God in us. We don't have it within ourselves to do, to do this work. And so, so can, can those times of being tired be invitations to return to God, to be filled afresh by the Holy Spirit? Um, I had a spiritual director once, a, an African-American woman, about 20 years older than me, I was describing what it felt like to be a white pastor in a black neighborhood in a multiracial space and all my insecurities and all my doubts and all my, I'm the wrong person for this. And, 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 and I said to her, I said, I just, I have nothing to depend on. I have no strengths, you know, in this, in this, in this environment. And she said, David, what's good about that is that it, a small taste, what I feel like when I go to my uh, predominantly white office job every single day. And, I, and that for me was such a gift, her, her willingness to share that with me. Because then I realized, okay, this thing that I had experienced as being very painful and something I wanted to run away from was actually drawing me closer to, to my sister in Christ. And so let me not run away from that, but let me see where the, the invitation to draw closer to, to this person who I've grown to, to love very, very deeply today is. Well, you know, David, I remember that you had shared that story with me years ago. I just remembered that. So I'm coming out of my senility for a moment, and I'll go back into it with amnesia and senility in a minute. But I, I remember you sharing that and how did she not add in that context that this will help build a greater bond with your own church community? Because, yeah. it, because that communal emphasis your African-American and brothers and sisters could, could feel more of a connection because there was more transparency, more vulnerability. And, and they became, in a sense, shepherds oh. under Christ to your soul. And oh, I think, absolutely. and there's that participation. That's like you said, when we draw from the African-American church tradition, because when we say, oh, I love the, the gospel music, it's so powerful, but it comes out of trauma. It comes out of trauma. It's not just great music. It comes out of finding victory in Christ in the means of victimization. And it's like, that's where the energy from the spirit comes. I mean, Jessica, tell me if I'm wrong, but that's what I've always thought. I think we need to learn from them instead of looking at charity, like we're having all this richness, we'll deposit. No, we're debtors. We need the whole church and we need these Christians to speak into our lives so that we can be healed. Um, you know, it's, we need to see it's a communal reality, like you were saying. Jessica, any thoughts on that before we go to the next question for you? Well, David, I just love what you said about being discipled and, and brought up basically under black females and how powerful that is, especially in this work. Um, I say that with my own bias being a black female, but I think that we are uniquely equipped in this space to be bridge builders. And in so many ways, we've been at the opposite end of the spectrum from white men. Um, if you talk about male and female in that spectrum, and then you talk about blackness and whiteness, we couldn't get further apart. So to say, hey, I submit underneath the discipleship of somebody that traditionally I'm able to have my foot on their neck. Mm -hmm. It is such a picture of Christ mm -hmm. to be able to do that. And it's a beautiful relationship between the two of, of learning of grace and of community that I think is a really powerful thing that I'm seeing shift people when they sit mm -hmm. um, at the feet of, of black leaders, specifically black women, yep. um, because there's, there's just a power in that that I think is, is a beautiful sharing mm. yep. in, in community. Mm. And, and I wanna add to that, because this is, this is important, mm. it's also just way better. It's just, it's just so much better. And I, I, was, I was in conversation with a, 
an African-American denominational leader in our denomination. And I was, I was talking about this. I said, you know, just what a gift it has been to my own soul to submit to, to, to women and men of, of color. And, and he, said, he said, yeah, I always figured it would be pretty tiring to always think you had to have everything together. To, to, to be formed to think that you somehow have to have the answers all the time. And no one had ever quite said it to me. This is just like a month or two ago. And I thought, yeah, that's, that's so brilliant because that's, that's not a human way to live. That, that's, a, that's a dehuman way to live, that, to, to, to be formed in that way. And, and so I think it's important that people hear that it's not just the good thing to do, the right thing to do. We're talking about God here. So it's also just, it's just better. It's just the, the, the better way to be human, I think. Beautiful, beautiful. This is awesome. Um, <clears throat> so, Jessica, a white person like David or me can pull out of the racial conversation, as David had said, and pull back from the struggle whenever we want, which is most unfortunate, and we lose out. We lose out. Back to David's point just a minute ago. Uh, you don't have that luxury or escape clause. Uh, you have to live with a struggle all the time. Uh, what's that like for you, and how do you do your work through possible scarring and hurt spiritually, holistically, as an African-American woman and as a Christian leader? Because we're dealing with that, the trauma and how to build resilience and to grow toward spiritual and communal health. Well, the first part of what you were asking about having the escape clause, I would start there and kind of give you um, a vulnerable peek behind the curtain that I, I think can build some resilience. Um, oftentimes in these relationships, there's a lack of trust and nobody says it out loud, but that's why. So when I have someone say, I'm an ally and I'm for you, I love that, but I know that they can run. If it gets too hard, they can leave. Uh, if we're fighting and, and they're paving with me, that at any point they can say, this is too much. It's no longer my work. Mm -hmm. And so there can be a lack of trust when it comes to communities of color and white people or people in power. And I think that talking about that is a really healthy thing because a lot of times when that comes out or when the question is, are you really with me? Or can I tell you my real frustration about the exchange that just happened or about something that happened in my life? A lot of times there's a lack of resilience to hear that without personalizing it. So you'll hear someone say, well, I can't change the color of my skin when I'm just talking to somebody who I think is an ally about a frustration that happened with whiteness. So even the language of that, whiteness as a construct is different than whiteness as a, as a skin color. But it's so easy Can to personalize. Can you say that again? Because I think people miss that. You know, they, yeah. it's like just, I think it's so important. Yeah. Whiteness is a skin color versus whiteness is a construct. Do you mind just? Yeah, the construct is very similar to what David was saying of I'm white and I'm male. I'm supposed to have the answer. I'm supposed to be the one up front. I'm supposed to do all those things. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about the construct that David was raised in to believe all those things about himself and his role in society. And that I was raised to see the same thing that David belongs up front, that David's voice has authority spiritually and not mine. Those are the constructs that we're assigning to whiteness. We're not saying white people are evil. We're saying whiteness or that construct of whiteness or maleness or power 
is something we're participating in. And so oftentimes I'm speaking about that construct in general, but because the word whiteness is attached, someone just automatically feels like I'm attacking them or saying something about them and it gets personalized there. And so I think that just talking about that openly, about the trust, about what comes up is really important as we think about who can, who can stay and who can go in the conversation. And then the second part about that, about what's the scarring or what's the hurt, how do you enter that? Um, I would say, honestly, you don't have a choice. And so you kind of have to figure that out. And one of the things being um, raised in whiteness, the construct of, and in dominantly white culture, in my home, in my life, in my church, in my schools, in my neighborhoods, one of the things that I didn't recognize was that I can't fully heal my racialized trauma in whiteness. You can't heal in the same situation that is doing the wounding. And a sister in the Lord actually was leading a call for white people after George Floyd and was speaking to them about what I wish you knew, what I wish you understood. And well-meaning white people said, hey, what can we do? And I loved her response because she was basically like, you can't do anything because what I need to do is go be with black people. And that's where I'm gonna get some healing. And for us in this conversation, that can, that can put up walls, but I want us to go a step deeper and recognize we are very comfortable with affinity when it comes to anything but race. So we have women's retreats all the time. I never hear my husband complaining that he wasn't invited. We have youth group and nobody's like, I wonder what those kids are talking about. But as soon as it comes to, you're gonna have a black affinity group, everyone is wondering, what are they talking about? And honestly, I think we have to reconcile some of that because that's some historical junk around when people get together and talk, are they conspiring? Are they doing something? that is talking about us or whoever's in power. And so why a racial affinity makes us scared, I think we really need to think about that and talk about it because we're so comfortable with the other affinities. But as soon as it's based on race, it feels scary. And I would say that's how I'm learning to find healing for myself is in those groups where I'm with women and women of color specifically. And part of that is I will tell an experience and my experience is not questioned. I will tell an experience and they will see all the nuance of what happened and they'll give the look or the, oh girl, that really, they know, they know. And normally when I'm telling an experience in the construct of whiteness or to white people who haven't had that experience, the question is, what did you do? Why do you see it that way? It's actually re-traumatizing when I'm trying to put forth vulnerability or healing to not be believed. And it's the same thing when it comes to any kind of assault or trauma. When somebody comes and basically says, no matter what you say, I believe you. I believe that if you said there's harm, there's harm and I'm with you and I'm for you. It's so different trying to process that trauma where your very experience is questioned. And again, going back to the beginning of the question, I think it's questioned because we have to maintain a level of racial innocence. That's really not true. So when I tell white people, hey, here, here's something that happened to me, for them to believe that, they kind of have to believe that maybe they could perpetrate that, and that's so uncomfortable. They don't want that to be true, and so it's easier to just reject my experience. Mm -hmm. And so in that, I recognize, hey, there's reconciliation that's got to happen um, in these black, black and white communities and brown communities all over the place and all of us, but I'm not ready 
or able to reconcile until I can do some of the healing where I'm able to, again, come back and be vulnerable. So I think that it's this ebb and flow, this both and of the community um, where you feel like you belong and where you're not questioned, where you're believed, where you're honored, and then being able to come back into community that may as a whole have already caused you that harm to try to be a bridge or a reconciler. So it can be case by case, can it? I mean, it can mm -hmm. be, you know, different communities, even within one establishment, whether it's a church, an academic institution, or what have you, it, you know, safety, the feeling of safety, feeling um, connected, it can just vary from context to context. And being aware of that, being alert to it, and for myself, like, how do I respond? I remember we did a new wine retreat a year or two ago, and a well-intentioned white person like myself basically asked a question of an African-American woman and another, uh, uh, it was actually an Asian-American woman said to the African-American woman, you don't need to answer that question. Mm. Um, and, and the point being is that you don't, basically you don't have to defend yourself. And it, I think for the white person it was like, I wasn't trying to get, you know, to, but it, just the way the question's asked or the question being asked rather than just sitting in it, I think is such a, it's such a complex issue um, for someone like me. And so uh, we might have opportunity to go back to that. There was a lot there. There was a lot there in what you said, Jessica, and you know, I'm processing it for myself, but we need safe space. We all need safe spaces. And I think all the more in these kinds of things, we don't even know often in our churches, David, you're in a multi-ethnic church pastoring and it's like, it's navigating these different communities within a community, right? And there can be safe spots over here, not such a safe spot over there. Really difficult, really difficult. And maybe you'll have a chance to speak to that even with the next question, which is, David, what does rediscipling the white church entail? Part of your title of your book. How does it bear on racial fatigue, that concept again, as well as overcoming it and growing more resilient including for yourself as a white man and as a pastor? Well, I, I want to say first a, a yes and amen to everything that Dr. Taylor said there. One of the things that I'll regularly say in our, in our multiracial church is to, to the, to the uh, people of color, but particularly to, to the, to the African-American people, we're about a third, a third, a third uh, black, Asian American and, and white is that it is completely appropriate to maintain an, a, an honorary second membership at another church. <laughs> that, that there will be Sundays when you need to worship with the, you know, the church of your childhood um, and, and to do so unapologetically for, for the, those, exact, uh, those exact reasons. Um, uh, you know, we as a church, we do our best to, to not be centered on whiteness, to, to, to live fully into you know, what the spirit has done in a predominantly African-American neighborhood. And yet we know we, we have our own blind spots and, and, and we're, not, we're, we're not the black church, right? And so uh, I, I love that. And I, I really appreciate that emphasis. Uh, when I think about rediscipling the white church, I'm thinking about two things. One, uh, what I call the racial discipleship that is at work on all of us and in this book and on white people in particular. Uh, two, uh, to form us into a kind of contentment with segregation and complicity with racial injustice um, as white Christians, um, so, so that we are content with the racial status quo of our country, that we, in a sense, have conformed, uh, to use Paul's language, to the racialized pattern of this, of this world, um, so that there's a kind of secular, cultural, racial discipleship that's been at work on our hearts and minds that white churches have not acknowledged. We have not reckoned seriously with the 
formational power uh, of race. Um, so someone like Brian Stevenson talks about the narrative of racial difference, that there's an actual story being told that's captivated hearts and minds and, and has, I would say, deformed the, the body of Christ because we have been content with, with that uh, status quo. Um, but I'm also then thinking about you know, what does it mean to follow Jesus as, a, as Christian people? It's to follow him as, as fully embodied people. And so uh, if we're going to think about an alternative to the, the segregation that is uh, just endemic to American Christianity and to the, the, the racial exclusion that is at, a, at the heart of uh, white Christianity historically, we need to think to, about discipleship. We need to think about holistic transformation. It's not enough to give people facts and figures. Oh, how I wish that it was. If I could just give you the stats and that would change your mind, or if I could preach the sermon and you would see, oh my goodness, God's heart is for justice. Righteousness is what characterizes the people of God. That would be uh, wonderful. Uh, but, but I think a more Christian anthropology has to reckon uh, with our hearts and with our desires and our loves. And so as, as much as it would be great to, to be able to give some facts and figures or preach that amazing sermon, if we're going to re-disciple white people, if we're going to, to orient white Christians into a lived solidarity with the body of Christ that bears beautiful witness to the reconciliation accomplished by Jesus, then we have to think about the change of hearts, imaginations, assumptions. We have to think very, very deeply. And so that's what I'm after in this book. I'm, I'm trying to, to ask, could the, the discipleship practices in our church be reimagined to unleash what I believe is their latent potential to actually form white Christians so that we have more and more in common with the diverse body of Christ to whom we belong than we do with other white people who don't proclaim allegiance uh, to, to our Lord Jesus. Um, that, that's, that's my hope. Um, and I realize it's a, it's a stretch because there's a very, very long history here, but it's what keeps me up at night um, is I, I, I read the New Testament and I, I see the, the vision there of what Jesus has accomplished and how it is that we are actually meant to experience that and demonstrate that to the world and how far uh, we are from that, uh, particularly as white Christians. And so I just have to believe that God's heart is 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 different for us and god's desire and intentions is, is different for us you know as you were saying about uh david about uh romans chapter 12 right do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of our minds you know that rediscipling that has to go on and you were getting at the heart trajectory and i was thinking back to chapter 11 because wherever there's a therefore there's a wherefore as stephen alford said and so What's the context that would lead us to want to be transformed in our minds? It's because of God's mercy toward the Gentiles, right? With the Jews, you know, this division between them, and both are to experience God's grace and are the recipients of God's mercy and grace. But that, what I hear you saying is you're talking about the heart trajectories and desires being changed, and that's going to shape us. I always believe that the desires are what lead to the changed behaviors yes. because of the transformation yes of God's mercy revealed in Jesus Christ, that is good news. It's that therefore of the mercy and grace that leads us. And yes. so if I'm not experiencing that, back to the point of discipleship, if I'm not responding well on this of sharing in God's abundance with others and have that fear of scarcity, got to 
keep that whiteness going for me, it might, it might be the case that I haven't really responded very well to God's mercy and grace that I'm holding on so yeah. rather than living with an open hand. That's a question I always ask myself. Yeah. Closed fist, open hand. Closed right. fist, open yeah. hand. So thank you for that um, point. Uh, Jessica, what coaching tips? Because you do a lot of work in coaching. You've done it. You're doing that at Multnomah University. Is You're leading us in moving with greater intentionality, far, far greater intentionality into this matter. Um, and counsel, what counsel would you provide? What coaching tips would you provide to help other ethnic minorities engage in soul care for racial trauma and scarring? And I'm I'll just, you know these questions, um, but I'm going to send them out all at once so I don't get in, in the way and asking another question. Also, what kind of relationships required and with whom to bring about relational healing? Moreover, what coaching tips would you provide white people like David and me to become more sensitive to what ethnic minorities may be experiencing, including in your work presently of helping a historically and predominantly white academic institution, well-intentioned as we may be, grow more culturally intelligent and relationally sound in the pursuit of ethnic diversification, which isn't easy for you, back to the points we've been talking about, leading the charge, it's gotta be hard. I mean, I can't imagine how hard it must be because uh, it's not safe at every turn. Um, it takes a lot of risk on your part. So your thoughts on that answer to these questions. So I think coaching is about asking really great questions and really digging in to see something from someone else's perspective. So when I think about a client or think about somebody I'm working with, it's not about me just seeing their life. It's about me getting at their level right where their face is and saying, tell me what you see and getting really curious about that. And so I would say on, on the first hand for people of color, one of the things that's really important is that we see ourselves as Christ sees us, as Jesus sees us. And that takes a lot of decolonizing. That takes a lot of undoing what we were taught to see in ourselves, which was that dark skin is undesirable or that blackness is evil. I mean, even how we talk about darkness and light, then the darker you are, the more evil you are. Like we've been taught these things. Um, and so we have to ask really critical questions of scripture and of Jesus. And I actually really feel like there needs to be an identification with Jesus, not just in doing what he did, but in how he chose to come into humanity to understand he was a Middle Eastern Jewish man, that he was an outsider, that he fled as a refugee, that he's from this stigmatized town, that he's under Roman occupation, that he's coming to set the oppressed free and all these crossings of ethnic lines that he's doing with the Gentiles, how he's teaching about becoming the family of God. He's surrounding himself in solidarity with all these oppressed people. I'm like, that is soul care, is to remember that Jesus could have crawled into humanity in any way, but that's the way he chose to crawl into humanity. And I really identify with that. I identify, um, especially when I'm feeling um, not great about the work that there is to do, or I'm feeling attacked, or I'm feeling discouraged that it will never get better. When I see myself at the margins of scripture, or in the margins of life and society, I know beyond any doubt that Jesus's heart was for me even if the world is rejecting me. And so I think that that's where people of color can really center themselves in that narrative of saying, Jesus is always pulling us back and saying, I see you. 
and I'm like you and you can be like me in that invitation. So that's soul care on that side. And then for white people, I would say you have to get healthy enough to handle what is hard. If you're unhealthy and you're a mess, just emotionally, socially, all these things, you are not going to have the resilience to handle these conversations. So you need to get healthy and strong, get support from other white people who want to do this work so that you can be resilient and handle these hard feelings. You need to continue to put yourself in the shoes of other people, which is a commitment to basically being uncomfortable forever and ever. Amen. <laughs> and in that, you do need to pace yourself because I see, especially there's kind of this crescendo of violence or of, uh, racial awakening. And then what happens is people are marching, marching, marching or protesting or, or voting or writing or speaking. And I'm like, okay, well, I'll see where you are in three weeks because you can't keep that pace. You have to pace yourself because you are human. And again, not superhuman, no matter how much you believe in this. So that pacing and that being mindful is important. Mm -hmm. In that, I also think that for soul care for white people, I would say you need to be really mindful and careful of the, the dichotomy of impact versus intent. That whatever your impact was, deal with that. Let that be and then deal with the intent of what you meant and the fact that you're a great person and all these things. Don't deal with that in the face of someone who just told you that there was a negative impact because that breaks down relationship. You can be active in that, not passive. Um, even in your questioning and your relationships with people of color, I always welcome when somebody starts, a, especially a racialized discussion with me with, hey, I'm reading this and I'm wondering about this. I heard this on a podcast I was listening to and I don't know how to reconcile it because that tells me they're engaging. They're not expecting me to do their work. So be active, engage, start your conversations with people of color like that to showcase that you're safe because you're engaging. That proximity is so key that we need to be with each other. We need to be in each other's lives. Um, and I think a really difficult thing to be thinking through as white people is how do I balance that? Because um, man, when something goes wrong racially in the media, I can't tell you how many white people pick up the phone and call me. And I think, I am the only black person that you know. I am the only person that you feel safe having this conversation with. So I'm blessed to have that role and that proximity. But if I'm the only one, if you've always picked up the phone and called the same person, then I would say expand that because you don't want a relationship just like in any friendship or intimate relationship to be so unbalanced where you're always coming and expecting to be poured into versus where you pour out. And that includes professionally for us. I always think, how are you paying that person for their, their labor? Because that labor was not free for them. It was not free for them to open themselves up and tell you about their experience, let you kind of peek and say, eh, that's valid or it's not, that's not free. And so thinking about that as we're, we're just honoring the gift that people are, are giving us and then lastly, I would say that um, as white people are, are building that, that resilience muscle, that they can give up defensiveness. And that's for all of us. It's a humility of I'm going to choose to not be defensive, but to be curious. And in that, I think we actually open the door to legacy, to recognizing that what I'm doing right now in these conversations is going to have this rippling impact for generations to come. And when I remember that, I can slow down and say, I don't have to fix this in one conversation. 
I am going to be part of this solution though for the rest of my life. And it's a very long journey, isn't it? I mean, um, Lisa Sharon Harper was sharing one of these episodes uh, that we did at New Wine just uh, a while ago, you know, that, you know, the finish line, finish line, you know, not so much wanting to talk about the finish line. It is a marathon race. It is a marathon race, but finish line, it's a lifelong, lifelong journey. And I remember we did the a forum New Wine years ago called Blue Eye, you know, with Jane Elliott, and someone well-intentioned person said, you know, we didn't solve the problem tonight. Thinking, solve the problem, let's live the question. Let's live into it. Like you were saying, when someone says, you know, I'm really wrestling through this, there's an openness and inquisitiveness and not asking you to have to solve it all for them at every turn. It's to, to really engage. And I, I think, again, as people watch and listen, hopefully come back and listen again to what you're sharing in this process, how do I deal with it? And if, yeah, it's not about my intentions all the time. My intentions might be fine. I didn't mean harm, but what's the impact of my actions? And will I deal with that? Because hell is paid with good intentions. Is that a Bible verse somewhere? I don't know. But uh, from the book of uh, Hesitations, I that's believe. That's right. That's right. Yes. But but the point still stands, right? That it's we're talking about the actions, the impact, not always one's intentions. And I think that's often a white logic. Well, my intentions were right, so therefore there was no bad impact. It's like no, that that's not the case. I mean, I I do a lot of dumb things. My intentions were fine, harmful things. Well, and I would, I would love to add just one more thing about this idea of solving things because we want to solve things, but that's also part of the construct of whiteness that says, hey, we need to fix this um, because that's what you do. Power structures say, hey, there's a problem and we found a solution. So one of the ways that we can recognize that this is a long-term thing is to remember that one, we didn't get here overnight and we didn't get here an accident. People are already tired of talking about race after, you know, like six weeks of what they think is prolonged talking about it. And so I think that what we have to remember, especially as believers, is that we are always in a posture of learning, mm. not knowing. Mm. And we would never say, I read the Bible like five times already. It doesn't have more to reveal to me. We're done talking about it, right? Because there's a new revelation all the time. And it's the same thing in this conversation about race. If you're coming hoping to solve or to get the answer and then do it right, you, you don't come to your Christianity like that. You have to come to it the same way where you're saying, I'm coming into a relationship that's forever and there's going to be new res revelations forever. And that that's exciting to me versus exhausting to me because I'm never going to know mm. all that there can be to know about God or understand all the things. And yet every day I wake up and say, I want a relationship with him. Mm. And I hope we can shift to be that same way about race that we're like, I, every day I wake up and I want a better relationship with the Pauls and David in my life. So I'm going to engage this because that's how I do that. Waiting for the new revelation. And it frees us up, doesn't it? It frees us up. It's like, I don't have to know everything back to the point that David was making earlier, Jessica, right? And it's like, we all know that, like, you know, like you said, so well, so beautifully that, you know, the Bible, for example, it's like, it's, it's, I think Luther said something like this, it's, it's shallow enough for the child to wade, and it's, it's deep enough for the theologian to scuba dive in, and he wasn't thinking scuba diving, but it's that idea, so why do I think that I have to get this solved? Um, I need to take action, but I need to live the question, I, just what you said is just a lot, and that frees us up, we can take a breath, we can take a breath, and keep moving. David, how would you go about addressing these themes in your pastorate? And, you know, 
it's not something, how would you go about? I mean, you are going about it. How do you go about addressing these themes in your pastorate as you seek to foster a diverse community? You said a third African-American, a third Asian-American, a third white. That's pretty amazing, actually. That's, that ain't easy. That ain't easy to, to get to that point. Praise God. Um, as you seek to foster a diverse community, struggling to stay engaged, to survive and thrive in running the marathon race together. You'd already said you can have a second membership. Sometimes you're going to need to go and worship some Sunday morning with, you know, your African-American brothers and sisters alone, etc. But what other, in addition to that, what other recommendations would you give? Uh, well, you should definitely hire Dr. Taylor to come, uh, uh, you know, either do some lectures or preach because that was a, that was a whole sermon and a weekend workshop there yeah, in like yeah, a five yeah. minute response. I was like, someone, someone is preaching right now. That was so, so good. Uh, especially that first part on, on, you know, your biblical piece on what God says about you. It's like, oh yes, yes, yes. So. Uh, do that first for sure and then pay her well for the good work that she she will do um yeah i think you know so one thing for us in our community is um so i'm going back now to this uh this this really painful season that we're in right now uh that began with the video of, of ahmaud arbery's uh, murder and then of course brianna taylor and then george floyd and in a multiracial setting you just have very different experiences of that moment and pastoring in that setting does have some unique challenges, I think. So you have some people who, for whom this is sort of the, their first experience of a moment like this in a multiracial setting. Um, now there's been lots of these seasons over the past five to eight years, um, but maybe there's someone who's been at our church for six months and this is kind of new to them. And mm -hmm. so they're asking questions, they're learning, they, they're maybe feeling a little confused. Um, and then you have people maybe on the other end of the spectrum of experience for whom this has been their lived reality their entire lives and so this is not about knowledge this is not about information this is not about tell me something i don't know explain to me why this happens like this it's, this is uh grief this is um lament you know this mm -hmm. is uh trauma um this is maybe despair like all the human emotions right that we can have around a, a time like this and so I think that's uh, in a multiracial setting, that is, that's a unique uh, challenge. How do you pastor uh, those who are experiencing very, very different things at a, at a moment like this? I'll tell you, my default is I default to, um, <laughs> I, I default as best I know how to the African-American men and women in our church. Uh, we are in a black neighborhood. <laughs> Um, we are a church that has said we intentionally uh, uh, are working to to not center the white experience, and so what I what I do my best in, in my own head to remind myself of is is the sermon today is is for that person for whom this has been their lived experience. Worship today, Bible study today, and if you're going to be at our church, then you will be okay with that. Uh, you don't have to be black to be okay with that. But your own discipleship will, will, will be one where you come to be, okay, like not just okay with it, but you come to expect that. Because as we, as we, um, as we and I think Dr. Taylor did this really well in sort of describing the biblical narrative and, and how it, it does hit these themes over and over and over again, the person of Jesus himself as well. As we center, again, in our context, 
that, that the African-American experience, everybody benefits. Um, th this, is, this is the mercy and the grace of God, right? That the particularities of our experience become for, universally good for everybody in the congregation. And it's not to say that we'll never engage the Asian American experience. Of course not. We do uh, that in, in a variety of different ways. But, but when, we, when we do our best to, to elevate that particular experience, that experience which has in many ways been erased uh, by the dominant culture or, or appropriated uh, and co-opted, when we, when we do our best to honor that particular experience, it ends up being just really, really good for the discipleship of the entire congregation. Mm -hmm. Now, there's some people who won't last. There's some people who, you know, that we're, I'm so used to being centered in all of this that this feels like too much. Okay, that's all right. There's lots of good churches in Chicago, and we're help, happy to help you find that church. But if you last, if you are a non-Black person and you last, then, then, then my belief is that you will actually come to find that this is for your good as well, too. Um, this is for your own flourishing as well. So I guess the only other thing I want to say, Paul, is like I know there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of white pastors out there right now and white churches who are wrestling with some of this stuff too, right? And for them, it, it maybe is more of, I have people asking questions. I have people, I preached a sermon and now half my church is mad at me or they're not tithing anymore or, you know, what, whatever. Um, and so I think what Dr. Taylor said about resilience is so, so important. Um, Jesus talks about the fact that he tells a story of, of, of a builder who starts a project and doesn't count the cost and just how embarrassing and how foolish that is. It's really important for those of us in pastoral leadership to count the cost. If we've not done this before, we don't know what the backlash is going to be. We don't know what the pushback is going to be. So let's count the cost early on so that when those that that opposition comes we'll be in a position to to understand that the holy spirit is in this too that god is good in this too and we won't be tempted to turn to the left or to the right but to continue to to, to press in thank you david and you know you were talking about uh decentering the white experience in your church and it reminded me of what uh, jessica had said about uh, i love the language of jesus crawling in to the particular, you get a crawled in, I love that language, crawling in uh, to think about, you know, we think about it at some, in some respects at Christmas time, but a lot of the hymns and songs just don't do justice to the kind of particular skin he crawled into. And, um, you know, that it's a decentered deity. It's a decentered God. Uh, and what difference does that make for our ecclesial academic experience? We're at the close of our time, but Dr. Taylor and Pastor Swanson, uh, what closing thoughts do you wish to share? Not because we're closing off the conversation, it's really just transitioning as part of the ongoing story of continuing to run the marathon race, hopefully with a bit more soul care as a result of hearing from my colleagues today and as we reflect on what they're sharing. But Dr. Taylor, Pastor Swanson, thoughts you have as we transition? Well, I would just remind us to center in the fact that we have to do this in community and that it's for the betterment of all and, and not just one or one particular group. So I love David that you said that. And I think so often we've been robbed and whiteness has said, hey, we're gonna talk about the black experience and we're gonna talk about civil rights heroes or slavery and that's it. And it's like, man, we are cheating all of ourselves out of the richness and the depth and the breadth 
that Jesus has in this particular people group. And we've cheated that out of so many other people groups by erasing that. And so when we bring that back in, um, even when you are decentered, it, it does not mean that you are not a part of the community. It does not mean that you are not critical and important. And so there's never a point in, in any of the work I'm doing where the goal is to to rip someone else down off the pedestal so I can have the pedestal. The goal is to build a bigger table that we all sit at. And so hopefully that that's the call to hope is that it's a bigger table uh, where everybody gets to have a voice, everybody gets to eat, everybody gets to learn and be in the narrative together. Amen. I love it. Love that vision. Thank you. I'll take that. I'll storm that castle with you, Dr. Taylor. Absolutely. Let's do that thing. Uh, my, my, I've been thinking about joy a lot lately. Um, I, I think that, that there's a way of, of pursuing justice that's joyless. Um, it's very mm -hmm. earnest. It's the, the good and right thing to do. We're supposed to do this, but there's no joy in it. And there's nothing Christian about that. And I think that, um, that when, we, when we understand God's heart for righteousness and, and justice, uh, and we give ourselves to that, yes, there's great cost to that and there there will be pain associated with that but because this is god's work because we are um we are we are following jesus in this there will always be joy as well and so i think that can be a helpful feedback loop when, in the conversation about soul care is am i joyful and if not then that that's that's a reason to pause for a moment right and say well what are my motivations um you know ha has there been some some cynicism that's attached itself to me? Have, have there, has there been some, some bitterness that's attached itself to me? Um, it could be pause. Messiah complex too, right? It could be a Messiah complex. We have I, have I, do I see myself as the savior, you know, in, in this moment? Um, all of those things will steal our joy. But, but a person with joy in this work, I think, is, is someone worth following, uh, is someone worth learning from. And, and I really think that's what, that's what God has for us. And that is what should make those of us who are Christians, it's a little bit distinct in this. You know, we can partner with everybody who's doing good work, but the Christians, they should be the joyful ones, sort of regardless of, of the circumstances of the moment. My wife's Japanese and we've been part of, you know, these types of discussions for, and, you know, communities for quite some time. And uh, what we've experienced with immigration has been challenging over the years and, and the like. And, uh, our kids are dual citizens, and, you know, and raised that context, so just facing some of this. But I remember in the midst of the trauma, my wife said once something to me and to others who are going through trauma in this context with race. And she said, yep, my cup overflows in the midst of the pain and the suffering. I just thought, wow, Mariko, that's, you know, back to Psalm 23, our cup overflows and that joy for the joy set before him. He endured the cross, despise and shame. And the great cloud of witnesses, the African-American community of the church through the centuries, 400 years in this country of the pain and the trauma. And we can draw from their energy and their strength, not to commodify it, but to live in and, and learn from these great saints, past and present, to live into the reality of the Lord Jesus for the joy set before me, endured the cross, despise and the shame, so that we might could enter into that bigger and bigger table. Dr. Jessica Taylor, Pastor David Swanson, thank you so much for your insights, your wisdom, your encouragement, your challenge, as we seek to live more fully into the marathon race as Jesus leads us forward. Thank you and thanks to all who watched this episode of New Wine Tastings. 
I'm Paul Lewis Metzger signing off, but also signing in. Thank you all the best. Goodbye.